Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Working Title Podcast. It's been a minute. Um, I've been on a bit of a hiatus. I haven't really touched this project for, I want to say, a little bit more than half a year now. Um, But anyways, uh, today I've got this episode about near-death experiences. I will preface that I'm not too happy with the audio quality. Um, I'm, I'm starting to realize that I, I need to find like a decent room to do this in or get two mics if I'm going to have two people. Uh, either way, I, I'm sure I'll figure it out eventually. Um, but until then, I'll just have to go with uh, the kind of crappy audio. Um, besides that, I've got a new co-host. His name's John. Um, at the at the beginning of this podcast here, uh, we're talking about tea. John's a big tea guy, and uh, he brought some Chinese tea, some real fancy aged white tea, and we're drinking it up, drinking it the whole podcast. So, uh, well, anyways, I hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, a side note, the intro music and the outro music are both from the film Constant Space by my good friend Emmett Fifield. Um, enjoy the show if you can hear it properly. craziest tea you've had and how did it affect you? Well, okay, I'll say purely physical. Uh, that's that's a horrible way to explain that. A, a, a poor experience, but a potent one, was on my four-day fast. I was really craving some matcha. And matcha is different than regular tea, right? Because you're consuming whole leaf material. Yeah, yeah. powder. Really. And uh, and I have some really nice matcha. I got some top <laughs> top shelf shelf, and uh, I made some up. It was fantastic. And, and that was day three. And ten minutes later, I was like super nauseous, sweating, cold, shaky, like, and I was like, what in the world? And I was driving on my way to work and started having claustrophobic feeling in my car. And I never, I've never felt claustrophobic in my life. And I literally, I had to pull over and like breathe. And then I vomited everywhere. Which, he did this to you. Yeah. Which was pretty much just, uh, my vomit consisted of bile and <laughs> water and matcha, and it was horrible. My goodness. Yeah. What was it? And then I felt great after that. <laughs> I was like, it like the demons out of me. A mini ayahuasca experience. Apparently. It was crazy. Um, but was then it, other it wasn't than, Chinese matcha, was it? No, Japanese. Yeah, that's why I, I figured it was all Japanese. What you're saying? Uh, other than that, I had um, the aged white teas, the aged young 
QWERTIES, or the, sorry, the aged young QWERTIES, the aged raw QWERTIES, they will, you get like this ball of energy in the center of your chest. And some of them are like upwards and some of them are downwards moving. Hmm. And you get your thought pad. It's kind of like getting a buzz on alcohol when you're not really like you're totally you, but you can notice that your thought patterns aren't what they normally are throughout the day. Mm-hmm. That you just you sort of get that. Yeah, except for it's not like alcohol. It's not a it's a it's an energizing kind of thing. It's be more like probably it's more like um, psilocybin in a way mm-hmm. in that kind of small dose. It's it's actually it's got very similar vibes to not microdose but like mm-hmm. a small dose of psilocybin like a a gram. It's got very similar feelings to that. That's very interesting. I'm surprised the DEA hasn't cracked down on uh, Chinese import tea. And thus, why John has been stocking up on it like a motherfucker. <laughs> uh, by the way, I started recording about. Uh, Three minutes ago, when I asked that question about tea. Perfect. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. I haven't recorded this thing in months. Uh, this is my new co-host, John. Hello, everybody. John likes tea. We're here sitting drinking tea right now, and uh, today we're going to talk about near-death experiences. Yeah. So. What is a near-death experience? I'll start there. Um, It's generally an experience that happens when someone's either uh, about to die or almost dies or really, really thinks they're about to die. And they either have a crazy out-of-body experience where they they travel through a dark tunnel and and reach uh, an extremely bright light or they, quote-unquote, meet God. Uh, the experience can range from person to person, but generally uh, they're ineffable in that uh, words fail to describe people's experiences. Um, near-death experiences uh, generally lie on uh, the, the word they use for it is uh, meta metempsychosis, which is the the belief that uh, at death the soul passes into another body. Um, Some interesting studies in the past, like one by uh, Dr. Kubler-Ross, concluded that everyone doesn't die alone and that spirit beings guide them and helps them, like, helps receive them into the afterlife. She, she did a study with, like, uh, I think it was something like 50 people and each of them that were at death's door uh, or were dying saw either a relative or a being of light that, uh, like, was where they like escorted them hmm. yeah <laughs> um uh, the official near-death experience uh, uh uh what's the word uh explanation is uh an intense awareness sense or experience of quote-unquote otherworldliness whether pleasant or unpleasant that happens to people who are at the edge of death uh you ever have one 
No. <laughs> Neither have I. Neither have I. Uh, the only poll that they really have of how many people in America have had them came from 1982. And it was uh, 5% of Americans that have had near-death experience, which is a pretty high amount of people, mm-hmm. really. Um, 70% of them were children, and 12 to 20% were adults that were at death's door. Um, an interesting thing about these near-death experiences is sometimes people will be pronounced clinically dead for like, from anywhere from five minutes to like an hour. And usually when, you're, when your brain's not getting oxygen for that amount of time, there's permanent brain damage, right? Mm-hmm. There's no permanent brain damage when they come to, which is, <laughs> you know. Hmm. Strange. Yeah, strange is one word for it. Um, the out-of-body experience is uh, like one of the heaviest characteristics of near-death experiences. People leaving their bodies, people hovering above their bodies, mm-hmm. uh, their their spirit slash soul leaving and traveling. Uh, people have talked about uh, out of body experiences in other settings, like uh, there's certain uh, sects of uh, Hinduism and meditation where you can be taught to have out of body experiences. However, they don't compare nearly to the intensity of uh, near death experience out of body experience. Uh, same with drug-induced ones. Generally, drug-induced out-of-body experiences are nowhere near the level of near-death experiences, save for maybe, maybe DMT and salvia, maybe. But even then, it's it's cutting it. Uh, the dark tunnel is a pervading theme in a lot of these. About less than 33% of people that have a near-death experience, so like 5%, 33% of the 5% mm-hmm. see this dark tunnel and they travel down this dark tunnel. Uh, and it goes at great speed, they say. And they usually have like a sensation of wind. Sometimes there's bright lights all around them. Sometimes they see spirit beings. But generally, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, which is a cliche, right? I mean, this, this reminds me a lot of uh, Chance McKenna's description of the, the DMT barrier. You've heard yeah. about this? Yeah. It's, 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 when you, I've, I've heard a lot about DMT when the breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah. The tunnel that gets you yeah. to the breakthrough. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a bright light. A lot of people tend to describe it as a, um, what the, the mandal, mon, mandal, mandala? Mandala. Interesting. Instead of a bright light. But it's, you know, similar in mm-hmm. archetypal ways. You know, you're going. Yeah. You're going through a lot of dark, un like unconscious kind of right. Mm-hmm. A lot of not necessarily literally dark, like you said, there's spirits and things, or can be mm-hmm. potentially. And then you're going to this known, like a thing you can see. Yeah, of, it, of it's interesting you bring that yeah. up about the mandala uh, because a lot of times with the DMT experiences, for anyone that doesn't know what DMT is, it's a an extremely powerful psychoactive drug that uh, may or may not already be produced in your brain. Uh, It's considered the most uh, potent uh, psychedelic in the world, uh, save for maybe salvia. 
Um, but usually with DMT experiences, they see a lot of shapes and, and you know, mandala-like things. Near-death experiences, they don't have any of that weird um, shapes. They don't have any of like the weird machine elves or, or uh, geometrical patterns or anything like that. It's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And the light at the end of the tunnel, it's almost always there with these dark tunnel experiences. There's a few instances where it's not. Where they just go through. Where it's dark. just a dark tunnel with no light at the end. Uh, but people have often said it's brighter than the sun, but doesn't cause any hurt to their eyes. Uh, and this is a verbatim quote it's invariably experienced as having intelligent, accepting, forgiving, and ever so wonderful qualities. Isn't it a lot other than all of the strange things? That one thing that stuck out to me is that um, these people assume they have eyes mm -hmm. in this state, which is kind of an interesting... Um, yeah, because they're obviously not in their bodies anymore, right? but they're still somehow seeing per something. Perceiving. They have yeah. something that is gathering senses that is similar to vision. Uh, yeah, I have no idea what that might be, but I think yeah. maybe their brain's just filling in the gaps. Um, yeah, you know, or it could be something way weirder, like they're a different being. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think that's true. In that, in that moment. And as we go on, you'll see how that would probably make more sense as well. Uh, we we jumped to our first experience, a guy named... Uh, or now it's a girl named Ellie Cavelli. What a name. Oh, what a name. Ellie Cavelli. It might be Eli, but it's two L's, so it's probably <laughs> Ellie Cavelli. That's a real name. From Dallas, Texas, 36 years old. Uh, they started to sort of die from some anesthesia issues, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they had a near-death experience. And they said, uh, and I quote, The sensation was like going up to a drive-in bank. And feeling yourself being placed into the cartridge and then finding yourself in that tube that sucks the cartridge into the bank. The tunnel to me was like a wormhole to another world. And then uh, once they went through this tunnel, they said they reached the end. They had feelings of love and peace followed, like nothing I've ever experienced before. Drugs and alcohol don't even compare to this kind of pot. Now, I will say they didn't have to even mention alcohol. I mean, no one is like, oh, man, this one time I was on alcohol. And <laughs> you got a point there. This one time I was on alcohol, man, and uh, we, I had this transcendent experience. <laughs> yeah, no one says that. And it's no. always like, you know, people have their lives changed by alcohol, but it's never like a, never good. Right. <laughs> alcohol, uh. It tends to be the downfall. It usually ends up with, you know, hitting someone or, or hitting yourself. I don't know. But then he says, and this is pretty interesting, I became all-knowing in an instant and found myself in the presence of white light that seemed to accept me just as I was. This white light that he's talking about is pervasive in a lot of these near-death experiences, including most people I've talked to about these near-death experiences. Granted, not all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, then he says, I was given my life review 
judged myself from what I learned on Earth versus what I newly learned, many things seemed the opposite. As I said, everything that I had thought was so important seemed to mean nothing to me anymore. I was different, and I knew I'd never be the same again. I got some major goosebumps. <laughs> so, getting instant knowledge of everything ever. You'd think that would be overwhelming, and it probably is. But it happens all the time with these near-death experiences. Uh, mm. Same with the life review. People will, will see this uh, this like kind of like skit of their life, this like film of their life played out in front of them. Flip mm -hmm. um, over here and give you guys all the... Uh, All of the traits of a near-death experience. Visualizing or experiencing being apart from the physical body, perhaps with the ability to change locations. Uh, greatly enhanced cognition. Thoughts clear, rapid, and hyper-lucid. I like that word, hyper-lucid. Mm -hmm. It's like more real than real. Yes. Which is a crazy thought, right? And a darkness or light that is perceived as alive and intelligent and powerful. A sense of presence. Sensations of movement, uh, hyper alert faculties, heightened sense of smell, taste, touch, sight, and sound, sudden overwhelming floods of emotion or feelings, encounter with an identified deceased person or animal or seemingly non-physical entity, a life review, like aforementioned. Life previews are possible, like futuristic, like seeing the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, information can be imparted... Um, telepathically from beings mm -hmm. to these people. Um, granted, not all of these happen in a near-death experience. Generally, a near-death experience will have one or two of these traits. Very rarely does someone have all of them. I'd say almost never. Uh, they'll have one or two of these. No two near-death experiences are, are, are the same. Uh, Everyone's is a little bit different. Very interesting. I, uh, we can talk about it at whatever time, mm -hmm. but one of the only near-death experiences I, I looked up for this, because I, I didn't know if it existed or not, but mm -hmm. Carl Jung, you know? Yeah, so I know Carl Jung. For anyone who doesn't, Carl Jung is a... Uh, 20, early 20th century psychiatrist, student of uh, Sigmund Freud, and came up with all sorts of things that are now very common in culture, mainly being subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. Subconscious. And, he, and um, the fact that you have a personality. That's all Carl Jung. Personality is not a thing in culture before that. The fact that you can have like a type of personality, it's all and that kind of stuff. Um, but he did have a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. it's very intriguing, but I, I don't know if I could, I could I, give a brief summary at any point whenever. And yeah, we'll, we'll go over that yep. in a moment. Yep. You just mentioned that he said personality isn't like a thing, right? Or, sorry, he personality, he's the one that came up with the idea of the fact that people can have personalities, like you know, the INFJ. Blah, oh, blah, 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 yeah, blah. the Myers-Briggs stuff. Yeah, and the fact that you can 
because that's kind of interesting. A lot of people don't think about that too much, but that's kind of stating that you're not just you. You're like a genre of person. Yeah. I. Is that just a way to kind of make it easier to label people and understand them, though? Um, well, so the Myers-Briggs test is a little bit of a bastardization. Yeah. You know, Carl's, Carl Jung's theory about it. But the, the point of the real point that matters, you're, you're right. Like pop culture is kind of whatever. The point that matters is that things, for whatever reason in this realm, things repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. Or rhyme is a better way, right? And it's kind yeah. of the thing like there's nothing new under the sun. History rhymes, but Carl Jung took it to a level of like the subconscious rhymes, people mm-hmm. rhyme, like, you know, all stories rhyme, all that kind of thing, which is a little bit more reasonable than like just and, and also he's very intimate about the individual as well. Uh, I was going to mention that uh, a lot of these accounts, they say they, they get through this tunnel and they get to the light at the end. And they say it is God, pretty much. And then they become one with it. But they say they're still also themselves. It's like suddenly they become everything ever. Mm. But they still have their own personality and they're still themselves. It's kind of like um, an ego dissolution, but your ego is still there. Yeah, it's weird. They even say it's like their ego dissolves, but it's still, they're still them. Like that would be, which if you look at Hindu beliefs, you know, of the Hindu belief basically is a, is a moksha, right? Mm-hmm. You achieve your goal as a being is to one day achieve unity with the, uh, the main Godhead. Right. Cause you are part of God, according to the Hindu belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, that theme is in, like every, every yeah. like you know, uh, Christianity. Christians don't like to admit it's part of it, right? <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the first lines in the Bible is "You're creating God's image," and that's one of those file away and mm-hmm. uh, huh. Not only that, but the word for God and and most of Genesis was it Adonai, which is plural. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah, and then yeah, they also they have a bunch of different words for. Um, they have Yahweh, but then they also have. Um, uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue too. Yeah, there's Yahweh, Adonai, and then uh, oh, I'm I can't yeah. think of it right now. Neither can I on the spot here, but uh, they have another one, and that last one it's is actually a referral to denotes both genders, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and like. What is what we would kind of call a pantheon of gods, but it's a very complicated Hebrew idea, but refers to more than one powerful being. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yahweh was a singular powerful being out of those powerful. The, the going deep into this, the Hebrew spiritual, like they had this whole thing that wasn't just mm-hmm. God, but uh. It's, it's weird that Christians don't understand, or like, 
I guess they don't really know much about it, even though they still have the Godhead of like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're like, no, yeah, that makes sense. Right. <laughs> oh, that's, sorry, that's where I was going with it. Um, the Christians were made in God's image. Hindus, you're part of the emotion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then also in Buddhism, you're you're they have a pretty crazy view of the world, but pretty much like everyone is God slash the universe, the all powerful, whatever you want to call it. And you're like you created yourself to experience the world. Kind of. That's a very yeah. Or as Bill H- or Bill Hicks said it once, a uh, famous comedian from the early '90s, late '80s. He said, uh, uh, "We are God experiencing itself through itself." You know, which I don't know how I feel about that, but I, I've always thought it's an interesting idea, uh, and it is a very yeah. Eastern thought. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's an interesting thing to explore. But uh, it tracks with all of this stuff. Yeah, that's, uh, and there's, I'm sure there's many more religions that I'm not familiar with that have similar ideas. Um, but there's definitely something divine in the human. Oh yeah. From you know, I I think that, and a lot of very old stories from a long time ago have the same idea woven. I mean, we have to. We're human, <laughs> <laughs> right? And you we know, think we're better than every other creature on this planet. We have to think we're divine in some way, and we're winning. I mean, the ants may have a one-up on us, but I think we'll be able to beat them at the end of the day. That's right. Uh, and the, you know, a very modern view is like, why do you assume you're better than, the, or why do you? You know, it's looked down upon to think that humans are like almost outside of creation. The, yeah, you know, the, uh, it's very like you're a product of evolution. Nothing matters. You weren't made. You you're just this idea that we're not even part of nature. Yeah, that we're just kind of like inhabiting nature. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought that was in, like kind of a weird thing. People like say cities aren't. You know, cities are outside of nature, and then we go on a hike to go experience nature because we're separate from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't know where it ends. I mean, we we make fire hydrants, we make we make metal buildings. Is that is it, how much different is that from an anthill? Yeah, probably a lot different. But the argument can be made it's, it's not like a that rhyme. different. I mean, if you back up. If you if you are a much larger organism than us, what do these cities look like? You know, um, I forget this lady's name, but she got in a car accident, and she says that her spirit entered a blue ball, huh. and that all of her worries went away. She then saw the accident from the blue ball, which she controlled. And flew around. She saw the ambulances coming. Her husband was part of the paramedic team. And she saw how her husband was struck by grief. And touched by this, she decided to return to her body. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But crazier than that, 
is uh, the story of Ricky Bradshaw. Ricky Bradshaw, in 1975, was working at a grocery store, and he was putting some groceries in the back of someone's truck when another truck uh, backed into him, and he fell on the ground, and then it kept backing into him and ground him in half. His torso was completely cut in half. He was pronounced dead at the hospital about an hour and a half later, which was the last thing he remembered, being wheeled through the hospital. And then uh, some medical students requested to experiment on him. And so, yeah, they're experimenting on his dead body. And after an hour of experimentation, the heart monitor started. Oh, <laughs> like a movie. Yeah. And 24 surgeries later, he's alive. Now With both halves of his body? Yeah, I think so. I don't know how they did it, but 24 surgeries and two years later, uh, he had some crazy stuff happen. Uh, he had an out-of-body experience. He saw brilliant light, heard loving voices, and revealing all of history from beginning to end. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Uh, now, he saw himself above a body in a room. Uh, someone took him through a tunnel. There was a large room with several beings in it. They saw family and friends, and he felt a great sense of love. He heard beautiful music. And then he remembered he, he had put his hands on a podium of sorts. Then there was another being on the left that asked him, what is your decision? And, uh, you know, he was supposed to decide whether to stay or go back to Earth. Interesting. And uh, afterwards, he said he learned to express more love and gratitude. Um, I looked up more on this Rick, Ricky Bradshaw character. Uh, apparently, he joined... I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's called the Baha'i Faith. It originated in uh, Iran and has been, you know, persecuted for a long time. The founder of the religion was put in jail for 40 some years. Mm -hmm. But it's basically a religion that takes all of the religions of the world and kind of just stuffs, stuffs it into one kind of cherry picks. Interesting. He said that after his experience, the Baha'i faith is the only one that made any sort of sense. Yeah. Uh, so, considering that these experiences are, are inherently ineffable, that people don't really have words for them. Sometimes it forces people to uh, kind of paint relatable pictures mm -hmm. so people can understand them. And sometimes this includes... Uh, people putting religious figures in when they weren't there before. Say they'll call something Jesus when it was just this being of light that they didn't really know. They'll call something God because they have no other word to describe something as beautiful and loving and bright that they saw. Um, and seldom do people return without uh, their lifelong beliefs uh, completely <laughs> upside down uh this one lady came, came back and her husband was a uh pastor at a church and she she said she couldn't go uh, to the church anymore and she said what he's telling the congregation is wrong i know better i was there and god doesn't ask that of us which is wild, man. Imagine, imagine that being just being like, "What is this crazy lady talking about right now?" Like growing up in the Bible Belt, yeah, going, seeing God for yourself, uh, you know, in spirit form, 
because that's the only way you probably could. And then coming back and realizing how ass backwards everyone's beliefs were. Yeah. That would be isolating. Well, I'm, I'm going to be honest, man. <laughs> so I grew up going to church constantly. I know I've talked to you about this before, mm-hmm. but a very similar experience happens when you actually read the Bible for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, there's a lot of things that you just get told in, in a church and you read the Bible and you're like, what are these crazy people talking about? But, uh, <laughs> I, so I, on this concept of people not having words to describe what, mm-hmm. what's happening. I also, I can't remember what it's called, but there's this, um, idea that like if for these spiritual experiences these ineffable in general not just near-death experiences mm-hmm. but i assume this they would fall under the same category is that people will experience them in in the context that they are given yeah. so like like you were saying how people call it so some people have the ability because they're open-minded, I would assume more so than mm-hmm. than a normal person to realize that it's not uh, what what they grew up thinking the the afterlife is, right? Yeah. But if if you're a pretty like standard Bible Belt Christian, right, and you have the spiritual experience, you'll just assume that all of it is God from the Bible, Jesus, mm-hmm. all these things. But if the if the guy, um, you know from India had the same experience, he's going to assume whatever hierarchy of gods, whoever, you know, he'll assume yeah. that it's that. Because you don't really, no one knows what these things look like or feel like. So then when you see something like that, you just kind of assume it is what you were taught it was. Yeah. And I see that, but I, I've come to take kind of a reverse approach on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, these experiences, uh, the Bible doesn't necessarily validate the experiences. It's more the experiences validate some things in the Bible or some things in the Bhagavad Gita. It's like these experiences are helping people to discern the truth in these ancient texts, I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to jump into uh, a little bit about the hellish experiences oh, people yes. have. Uh, cardiologist Mar- Maurice Rollins uh, says nearly 50% of near-death experiences recounted hellish scenarios, then rep- repressed them later, and then remembered them as positive ones. So they they had terrible things happen to them in these near-death experiences, and then their minds pushed it out of their memory. Uh, and then they remember it as a positive uh, yeah, so they, like, they, they take were, the good from it, and they just roll with that instead of taking the bad as well. So do they remember it? When when they say they remember it positively, does that mean mm-hmm. they remember like some of the trial and the benefit of going through the trial? Or are they remembering, remembering literally positive things that happened, uh, if that makes sense? She says here is they repressed them. Okay. Now, that being said, uh, a lot of these accounts 
were open about the, it being a negative experience. However, they were also open about how it positively affected them. So there's mm-hmm. kind of two camps there. The straight yeah. repression and then the, the ones that kind of, you know, it wasn't a good time, but they still learned from it. Like any sort right. of bad trip yeah. or any, any sort of bad time mm-hmm. in life that you came out of on mm-hmm. top, you know. Uh, Nancy Evans Bush, MA, estimates uh, 17% of NDEs are negative. So 17% isn't a huge amount. That's 17% of 5%, which is, you know, half a percentile. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually the world's inverted, void, hell-like. Uh, and then there's... Isn't that, isn't that interesting description? Well, hell-like, yeah. I mean, it's... Hell is human invent. Yeah. I, I, I will stand by that. Uh, guilt-laden life review. Like, that's that's another thing. They'll have the life review, but instead of just seeing it, they would have a lot of guilt attached to their life. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, because hell is kind of, like, you know, if it's lit, it's probably not, it's like, whatever, for you, it's like, whatever the least thing that you wish to happen is happening to you. Mm-hmm. Because I've read some stuff about people that experience hell and psychedelic stuff, all sorts of things like that, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, it tends to like, you know, there's some things are similar. A lot of it, though, is just like whatever sucks to you the most. Mm -hmm. That's what you get to do. You have to go through that. The closest I felt to the hellish experience is probably my only out-of-body experience I've had, which was with uh, Salvia Divinorum, in which I left my body through my mouth. <laughs> uh, yeah, my soul left my body through my mouth. That's what it felt like, at least. And then I forgot who I was. My ego dissolved, and it was just absolute isolation in the universe. And it was a terrifying experience. So you felt like you were, instead of being with everything you felt like you were apart from everything yeah it, i didn't know who i was where i was or why i was i i was scared i was going to be trapped there forever Here's and an that all of my life had led up to that moment where i was tricked into basically destroying reality and uh and then seeing this giant void uh and eventually i saw what i what i thought was all time and space collapsing in on each other and that's terrifying terrifying but also an extremely common experience with people that have tried this stuff which is crazy mm. uh there's a lot of theories on why that happens uh they say that the spirit of the plant salvia uh is not respected when it's burned yeah I've and you're that. supposed to chew it yeah uh, uh, yeah yeah maybe here. probably here that's what you get yeah stupid western white guy yeah well i mean here's the weirdest part about that experience i'm glad i did it because that to me was utter proof that oh i guess we do have souls and they can just kind of escape like i think our bodies are just vessels but i really quick yeah uh, you mentioned that you when that happened to you you felt like you didn't know who you were what you were or why you were so this is interesting you feel like you know those things right now? I know I'm a human being. 
I know my name's Matthew Setzer. Those are those are way more than I had when I was up there. <laughs> right. So then the really interesting question to ask it's a pretty Buddhist question, I think. Is uh do you really know that? Or do you it there's this idea that you're tricking yourself into thinking that in relative terms. I know it a thousand million times more than I did up in up in Salvia's right. Okay, I understand, so I understand it's, that. It's, but the the point is, yeah, if you dig deep enough, maybe I don't know. You know, maybe I don't know who I am, my real reality. That's yeah. probably true. I probably don't. But for now, on this plane, with my five senses intact, from what I know of, in this simulation or whatever it is, I have some semblance of being. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the the hellish accounts. I guess mm-hmm. I'll return to that. Yep. Uh, they're not specific to any demographic, so it's not like only bad people have hellish experience. It's like not even Christians are, are specific to having the hellish experience. Mm-hmm. It's anyone. No, no specific demographic at all. Mm-hmm. So it really kind of breaks the uh, idea that you know the good see a certain thing and the bad see a certain thing. It's not like that at all. Uh, sometimes if, if the near-death experience is drug-induced, like mm-hmm. uh, say there's like uh, opioids in their system, say at a hospital or something, uh-huh. it'll be dulled and it won't be as intense. Like it'll be more dark. There won't be as bright of a light, which uh, really makes me think that's more of a, a brain thing, but I can't be certain either. Uh, yeah. This next account is super exciting. It's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And I'm, I'm just going to read the whole thing Ooh. straight from the book here. I'm looking forward to this. So this is a story about uh, Tannis uh, Pruton from Vancouver, B.C. Um, she, was, uh, she was a young adult that uh, had a kind of an eating disorder and would throw up all of her food after each meal and uh, couldn't even retain water in her stomach at one point. She had uh, reached 86 pounds and uh, she was uh, that a size 3 dress hung on her. Her spine was bruised because there wasn't enough fat to, to cushion the bones. Uh, so she had gotten to such a terrible spot where you know she's dying uh, from this disease. Uh, she says, one evening I could not sleep. I was lying on the living room sofa and my father was sitting in a chair across the room from me. I called out in a whisper, God, what is wrong with me? Instantly, I felt myself move down within, then up and outward. Rather like a U-turn, I felt the most wonderful, gentle, loving, warm wave start at my toes and move up my whole body. I felt love. And on the screen of my inner mind, a message was imprinted by God in very large black capital letters, L-O-V-E. I left my body through my head and suddenly moved rapidly toward the corner of the ceiling. I did not look back or see my body on the sofa. I was on my way. I felt like ducking as the ceiling was only an inch from me. Then I was outside, moving through very dark, very vast space. As I moved, I became distracted by something to my left. Looking there, I saw small, round, glowing spheres of light. They seemed like people or spiritual presences. I felt they were lost, sad, and I wanted to help them. 
but I was not allowed to be sidetracked. I was aware of a presence on my right side keeping me on purpose. I was at a point of pure consciousness, racing toward an unknown destination. I felt no fear. I did not miss anyone or anything I left behind. Gradually, a light started to appear ahead of me. Very rapidly, I enveloped within this most divine, living, golden white light. My home, and home is in all capital letters there. The joy, bliss, humility, awe were beyond human capability to bear. The light, also in all capital letters, was an infinite, loving, accepting being, also in all capital letters, without form. It, capitals, it, had personality. It communicated with me telepathically. It was pure truth. Truth, also in all capitals. She's Obviously, these words are failing her, and she's mm-hmm. capitalizing them to really try to paint a picture here. Mm-hmm. I was the light, and the light was me. I was still a unique, separate point of consciousness with the same sense of humor and awareness that I had always had, with the paradoxes that I was more. I'd become homogenous with the light. I was all love, wisdom, truth, peace, joy for all eternity. Human words fail to express this experience. Not only was the message of my true nature conveyed to me telepathically, but I experienced the spirit of the message, spirit in all capitals. I felt it was with every speck of my being. There was absolutely no possibility of hiding, distorting information, or lying and communicating with the light. I felt madly in love with the spirit of truth, all capitals again. There was no concept of space or time in the greater reality, all capitals. All takes place or exists in the eternal now, also capitalized. That is my last conscious memory of the experience. So how about that? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. This person. <laughs> Interesting. It's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, that's. Also, if you, I personally assume that it all just is actually happening. Mm-hmm. It's actually real, and it makes it very strange. Yeah, because reading an experience like this, and then trying to come at it from an empirical, materialistic way. It, to me, seems like the dumbest way to approach it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I wonder what the brain was doing here. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, I'm not doubting that the brain is capable of a lot of things, but the intensity of this experience right here, the eternal now, the greater reality, the no lying was possible with the spirit of truth, that to me just seems, it seems the ultimate. It seems like that's the closest you're going to come to defining whatever God may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just my personal opinion, but I don't know, man. No, that's a lot <laughs> to take in. It's kind of... Yeah, uh, that's, that's my favorite account. She even drew a sketch here, uh, which I, I probably can't legally publish, but... Mm. Uh, the sketch doesn't really add, I'll be honest, it doesn't do much. <laughs> it's 
like a sketch and pencil. It's like, it's like uh, human words can't describe it, but maybe, maybe I can draw it with a number two on here. <laughs> uh, let's see here. All right, back to hell. Let's see. Uh, uh, this kid was playing. Uh, no, he was hit by a. I think it was hit by a car. And he saw the devil in a dark tunnel. Because, mm. you know, your kid is the devil. Right. right. Um, and he said he looked like a large glob of rotting flesh. He was angry, evil, sick, and crazy. He told six-year-old Scott at the time that he was bad, told him he wasn't allowed to leave. Scott then saw his dead uncle in the hospital gown that his dead uncle died. His dead uncle comforted him and then uh, led him to some other beings that escorted them through the tunnel toward a light brighter than the sun. You hear that all the time with these experiences. He felt this light was God. The light communicated he would be okay. Uh, angels in the light no, had no wings, no halos, no trumpets. They were just more like shapes of light that were beings. That's uh, the closest they could come to. Uh, and he said uh, that apparently he became more sensitive afterwards. Granted, you're six. <laughs> but, uh, a lot of life. <laughs> maybe in hindsight, you know, he was like, yeah. And he, he became more religious. He paid more attention to, to things of spiritual matters, like, mm -hmm. like God. And then there was uh, Gloria Hipple of Blakesley, Pennsylvania. She had a miscarriage. And she also had a hellish experience. And the uh, miscarriage? Yes, there were complications in the miscarriage. Oh. And she ended up bleeding a lot. Gotcha. Uh, she said she, had pulled, she was pulled down into a spinning vortex, a cyclonic void that tapered into a funnel. And she was pulled down head first. Then she said true terror set in. A black curtain fell in front of her, darker than the funnel itself. But then eventually she saw a white dot at the end of the funnel. And as this white uh, dot got closer, she realized it was a white skull. Mm. And that it was grinning, had bare sockets and a gaping mouth. And then a few moments later, the skull shattered into fragments. And it, it slowed her movement. A white light, the brightest light I have ever known or will see again was in place of the skull. A welcome, calming light. And then after that, she was fine. The terror left. She was calm. She was at peace. Uh, even though the miscarriage, something like a miscarriage, is a truly devastating experience for people, uh, she said that she was transformed by this near-death experience and that she became more courageous throughout her entire life after that happened. And so that's a hellish experience that... that benefited someone positive. Mm -hmm. um, and on to the pleasant slash heaven-like experiences. Um, Great Sprouse of Keene, Virginia started to drown and he uh, saw a film of, I guess her name's, uh, I didn't know that was a, a woman's name, Grade. Mm. I might have just written it down wrong too. Mm. But uh, <laughs> Uh, she started to drown. She saw a film of her own life shown by an angel. The angel wasn't judging her. Huh? Yeah, that's right. 
like a film of her life, like life flashes before her eyes. It's kind of like a film. Yeah, film's an interesting word Mm -hmm. to use. Anyway, which is used often. And I I think she was like uh, 12 or 13 when she saw it. And the angel wasn't judging. The angel Mm -hmm. was just there showing her this stuff. Uh, But she was starting to judge herself. And she saw like how she was mean to her sisters when she was younger mm-hmm. or whatever. And she felt sorrow, and was uh, which was abruptly replaced with uh, such a feeling of bliss that is indescribable. Uh, let's see here. Which was... The film thing is interesting. It happens a lot. And I, I wonder why. I'm, yeah. I wonder, well, like... Seeing your life is one thing. Interesting that people describe it as film versus like a play. You would feel like since you're in this realm, it could be different than watching a movie. And also like a weird thing is watching a whole film of your life would theoretically take as long as your life took. But... Things don't the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's the, what I was getting at. That and the fact that the film might be a... Um, the film could also be, you know, the, um, the angel trying to make it more familiar. Yeah. Or whatever. In this case, the angel. But in whoever's showing you... I think make they describe it, it as a film because maybe... Uh, they feel like an audience member watching something mm. well, from a so, different perspective that wasn't there. Right. I find it interesting that they say film instead of like, so in my mind, the way it would happen, like if I, if you said film, I would picture like a screen mm-hmm. moving pictures, but most people, if it was a screen, you would say film, but if it was like, you were in it, you would say it's like a skit or a play. I would assume. I feel like that would be a fair assumption. Uh, which, to me, implies that it wasn't that way. And it was on screen. Which yeah. is just interesting. It's it an could interesting also detail. just be that more people watch movies than watch plays. And Good so point. That's, that's you true. got a point there, too. <laughs> could very uh, well be that. This one's another fun one. Mm-hmm. This isn't as crazy as, as the other one, but it's still pretty insane. This guy named Arthi Yensa, or Jensen from Parma, Idaho. This is in like 1945 or something. This is back in the 30s or 40s, I think. And he got in a car with a guy. He needed a ride somewhere. This guy was driving too fast. Car rolled over. Uh, and then he says, gradually the earth seemed faded away. And through it loomed a bright, new, beautiful world beyond imagination. For half a minute, I could see both worlds at once. Finally, when the earth was gone, I stood in the, in the glory that could only be heaven. In the background were two beautiful round-topped mountains. The tops were snow-capped, and the slopes were adorned with foliage of indescribable beauty. The mountains appeared to be about 15 miles away, yet I could see individual flowers growing on their slopes. I estimated my vision to be about 100 times better than on earth. To the left was a shimmering lake containing a different kind of water, clear, golden, radiant, and alluring. It seemed to be alive. 
The whole landscape was carpeted with grass so vivid, clear, and green that it defies description. To the right was a grove of large, luxuriant trees composed of the same clear material that seemed to make up everything. I saw 20 people beyond the first trees playing a game. They were having a hilarious time. As soon as they saw me, four of the players left the game and joyfully skipped over to greet me. They appeared young, their bodies almost weightless, with grace and beauty of movement fascinating to watch. Both sexes had long hair entwined with flowers, which hung down in glossy masses to their waists. Their magnificence not only thrilled me, but filled me with awe. The oldest, largest, and strongest-looking man announced, You are in the land of the dead. We lived on earth just like you till we came here. He invited me to look at my arm. I looked, and it was translucent. That is, I could dimly see through it. Next, they had me look at the grass and trees. They were also translucent. Then I noticed that the landscape was gradually becoming familiar. It seemed as if I had been here before. I remembered what was on the other side of the mountains. Then, with a sudden burst of joy, I realized that this was my real home. Back on Earth, I had been a visitor, a misfit, and a homesick stranger. With a sigh of relief, I said to myself, Thank God I'm back again. This time I'll stay. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't stay. Uh, <laughs> uh, clearly. The oldest man, who looked like a Greek god, continued to explain, Everything over here is pure. The elements don't mix or break down as they do on Earth. Everything is kept in place by an all-pervading master vibration which prevents aging. That's why things don't get dirty or wear out, and why everything looks so bright and new. Then I understood how heaven could be eternal. And he, it goes on, he says he didn't want to leave, but uh, they said, you have more important work to do on earth, and you must go back and do it. There will come a time of great confusion, and the people will need your stabilizing influence. When your work on earth is done, then you can come back here and stay. Uh, Art died in his 90s, um, after fulfilling what he had been asked him, uh, becoming the quiet benefactor of thousands. Uh, he wrote a book called I Saw Heaven, <laughs> which, you know, I, I don't know if that helps or doesn't help his case. <laughs> but I want to point out how he says the oldest man who looked like a Greek god. And my first question with that was, did he look like a Greek god because, you know, story of the Greek gods has been part of Western history for, you know, a few thousand years. Mm -hmm. Or did the Greeks have some sort of knowledge of the afterlife and spiritual beings beyond them? It's probably the, the uh, <laughs> first one. But, yeah, I uh, don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell with this stuff. Is this stuff just in the subconscious of man? Well, yeah, man? because the other thing, too, is other gods look like Greek gods. Norse gods, mm -hmm. they, look, they look just like Greek gods. They, uh, you know, they have their... And then also the pantheons, they all have their rhymes, right? Mm -hmm. They all have their... Uh, in the the overall stories, the, the old um, multi-god, poly, polytheistic yeah. beliefs, they all they all rhyme insanely close with each other. 
which is a very strange thing, and it's one of the things you kind of just got to sit there and go. So what, what's in terms of looks, uh, do the Greek gods just look like perfect humans, or or do they? Is there something else godly about? Them? Oh yeah, you know. Well, I mean, you know, they're always described as glowy and beautiful, and, and yeah, and like radiant, right? And they like radiate they don't have power to and work out for their abs. They just <laughs> <laughs> right. Their hair is, tends to be luscious and, you know, long. I, I also want to point something else out, out about this account. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happened in the 30s or 40s, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he's using the word all-pervading master vibration. Got a point there, which is normal now. <laughs> it's normal now, but Not back in so the, those days, yeah. if you came yeah. out in 1940 and was like, yeah, you guys got to know about the master vibrate, anything about vibrations in general. I think Tesla is the only one that said anything about vibrations. I don't think Tesla was big in the early uh, 20th century. You're right. Uh, granted, right. I could be wrong about nuts. that. Say that for sure. But. So, yeah, that that experience, granted, calls it heaven. It's 1930s, 40s. Yeah. That's all you can think about. That's the closest thing you got. Right. Uh, there's, he doesn't know much about Eastern philosophy. He doesn't know anything about uh, anything besides Western faith. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray Kinman had a transcendental experience, which is different from the heavenly experience, different from the hellish experience. Mm-hmm. When his friend on the playground showed him a judo move and he landed on his head. Classic. <laughs> Classic. Uh, so <laughs> what's a transcendental experience man it's a bit more intense I'll get into it here um, well does it is there a um, general themed transcendental so the heavenly is just nice and it feels good transcendental I, I feel like that one where the, the, the girl um, meant that you know, spirit of truth. I think that's considered transcendental. Mm-hmm. Um, the heavenly ones are more focused on a place. Uh-huh. Wow, the, so the tra- transcendental is much more. Is um, more focused on not. It is no place. It's yeah, like it's, it's everything, eternity, all the big words used to describe ultimate. Right. I think. Um, these transcendental experiences are usually regarded as sacred. Uh, they, they have funnels of swirling light. And that's what Ray Kinman experienced. And he was greeted by funnels. a being of light and love. Yeah, funnel funnels of swirling light. That's interesting. Wasn't there also a guy that just um, said there was a whirlpool of darkness yeah that was the lady that had the miscarriage yeah she, she had the whirlpool of darkness and this is a, a, a funnel of funnel. swirling light so something very similar but similar opposite. but but yeah but opposite and uh he was greeted by being a light and love and then he says this he says love is far too weak of a word to describe the experience i became love my entire being, every strand of my spirit spreading throughout the universe had become love, times a million billion. Then he said he saw some giant golden gates, 
his pet dog Skippy that died a few years oh before. <laughs> and he says he was overwhelmed with joy and love and embraced my dog with my spirit. It felt like my spirit was being stuffed into a jar that was far too small and painful to hold it. And he's talking about when he came back. That's interesting. Yeah. And he says, I didn't want to come back, but I had to. And there's another quote like this, which I'll get to later, where they talk about going back into their bodies and it being super uncomfortable, painful, just dreadful. Do these people tend to suffer from the, the ones in spe- specifically that They're, have the unpleasant coming back? Do they tend to suffer from depression in the real world? Uh, no, they they didn't they didn't comment on any of that. No, um, it just it's just I think it's the natural state of humanity, which goes with uh, the common belief of Buddhist teachings that life is suffering, mm-hmm. and I think that that really captures that when mm-hmm. when their spirits return to their bodies, they really realize that they have that perspective of how human life is really limiting and, and atrocious. <laughs> Uh, I have more thoughts on that, but I'll get to it. So Ray had another uh, near-death experience when he was 16. So he had when one, was the first health? First one, he was on the playground when he was a kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. Next one, he was 16. He had an accidental overdose, which he says he was embarrassed. He tripped about. and fell onto a heroin needle. <laughs> uh, he said he saw the same funnel, but it was more intense and it was more fragmented. So it was more scary, too. Uh, his ego dissolved. He, then he felt the same love and peace feeling. And then he said he's once again escorted by a being of immense love, light, and holiness. But this time, it took him on a trip. All right. Uh, okay. Now, now this is uh, this is going to be a, a longer one, but I'm going to read it anyway. Now this is very difficult to describe. Time ceased to exist. Past and future were completely non-existent. I was traveling in an intense, burning now. Now was everything. I ceased to be a noun and became a verb. I was raying instead of ray. I was given a huge message. in the world? Yeah, he was no longer himself. He was being himself. Like he was himselfing. That's That's the best way he can describe it. I was no longer Ray. I was raying. Oh my goodness! Right. That's a great descriptor with our language, though. That's yeah, great. that's the best way he's using the acrobatics of human language to try to show us something. And then he says, "I was given a huge message. The being told me, this is who you really are.' As the universe opened up to me, I could not tell the difference between myself and the infinite galaxies. I became all powerful and all knowing. Yet." I was still ready. <laughs> then the being introduced me to another being of the most incredible beauty and love that anyone could comprehend. It was a greater being of intense light. It was God. The first being guided me to this light and let it enfold and swallow me up. I became one with love times a million, billion, trillion, forever and ever. Which is which is a lot. What's I, I, I think I've had love times two before. I think <laughs> I think that's what I've had. Uh, I don't know if I've even had that. <laughs> we were made of the same stuff. Every being that has ever existed in all of creation was now part of this greater whole being called God. I was one with all of them, and yet I was still Ray, all powerful little old me. 
This is who you really are, thundered the light. It looked like a galaxy, except the points of light were not stars. They were beings. Every being there was singing this incredibly beautiful music and praising God. After some indefinite length of nowness, I was told that I must go back. I was given another message that was very important. I was told I may return any time I wish to. Coming back to my body felt like I was stuffed into a vessel of pain and exhaustion. Well, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that ended very abruptly. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. That's because it goes straight on to someone else. But right, yeah. Right, right, right. What do you think of that? I, uh... Give me a second, Shane, to process this. Let, let me repeat yeah. that. What was it? Uh, after some indefinite length of nowness. Yeah. <laughs> quick side note, that read a lot like um, Douglas Adams' uh, Hitchhiker's Dead of the Galaxy. A lot of the way he described it, it's a very Douglas Adams-like style of <laughs> describing big things with very simple but creative words. Yeah, you know? like that I was raying instead yeah. of ray. I that became a very, verb instead of a noun. Very, very Douglas Adams. Very creative. But yeah, was, I liked, I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> and also got a very good mental picture. I, uh, these transcendental ones, are, they're wild. Yeah. <laughs> and so, these are definitely like, I find it interesting that some people have like this is almost like an order of magnitude different mm-hmm. than the guy that saw a bunch of pretty humans. Oh, it's, it's right? incredibly different, right? Yeah, and it's like a at, different plane of like maybe the the different like, planes of existence is a thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's there's no way even starting to to like kind of. Uh, speculate that yeah it's hurting my brain <laughs> yeah especially because like especially because uh if that like there's no way i mean maybe it could be something like the higher you are the more dimensions you know about but i don't even know if that's probably true because i would feel like we're not at the lowest right and implying that the hellish experiences would be a lower dimension in this scenario, right? And, yeah. But we don't know about it still. So what if most of the dimensions are just totally independent and no one has any idea what's going on and you just kind of are around? And then it's very complicated. You're just like, you're just like, oh, I just want a cookie. You know, I remember when I... I foolishly use the Ouija board to communicate with uh, what claims to be a demon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It said it was from the fifth plane of existence, which meant nothing to me. Right. Uh, but implies that it knows what the fifth plane of existence is. Sure. It's a, it put it in the best terms. Uh, how kind of it yes. to try to <laughs> explain where it is from. Right? Mm-hmm. It claimed it to be a demon. Oh, that, that brings me up. That reminds me. An interesting thing is that, so this, people will think one of the beings of light they see 
is God, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then there's, like, this guy saw multiple beings of light. He saw multiple beings of light, and he saw the greater being of light. Right. Which, was at it? that point, there's no doubt in their mind. Right. And, but in this one in particular is interesting, because wasn't he talking about how the greater being of light was composed of many I was, smaller lights? Well, yeah, let's see. It said, uh... I don't know if that was the great being. Every being that had ever existed in all creation was now part of this greater whole being called God. So, and and in the word picture, he describes it as being a galaxy, but instead of the star, the light being mm -hmm. stars, they, they were beings. beings. Yeah, that is. Uh, I was one with all of them, and yet I was still red. That um. Is a lot like Carl Jung's idea of the uh, collective subconscious, just the in general the idea of like somehow this plane of things that are like because all these experiences a normal modern Western person would just say they're not real, they're they're not real, but they're fascinating, a, but they're yeah. just parts of our brain, right? Yeah. yeah. But in a very, like, non-arguably empirical way, they're all real. Mm -hmm. They happen to people. And, uh... It's a very unique experience. It's a very extreme, I mean, hyper-real experience for mm -hmm. most of them. I mean, like more if, real. If it's more real than reality, what does that say? Yeah. I mean, I think that alone has its own merits. Um... There's one more account from the book I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, and then I'll, I'll probably move on to a couple of accounts that were given to me uh, earlier uh, uh, from people I know. And then I, I'll try to include some, uh, some other kind of interviews with people I know, at the, if, if not at the end of this podcast, then at the start of the next podcast. Because this is definitely going to be a multi-part uh, episode because there's way too much information on this to fit it all into one. I would have I would end up doing a nine hour podcast and I don't have that kind of time and I didn't I didn't take those kinds of notes. Right. Um, um, also, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to relate the uh, Carl Young yeah yeah uh let's do that right after mr melon thomas benedict from california sounds great it was 33 got a brain tumor right mm -hmm. and uh he knew that this cancer was progressing rapidly mm -hmm. and he realized he was dying as it was happening now this experience is wild because he had a brain tumor Right? He had a cancerous brain tumor. He says, just as he reached the light at the end of the tunnel, he shouted, stop a minute. This is my death. I want to think about this. <laughs> I really think it's taking ownership of your own mortality. Uh, That's fantastic. By consciously intervening, he willfully changed his near-death scenario into an exploration of realms beyond imagining, a complete overview of history from the Big Bang to 400 years into the future. That is awesome. And then it gets even crazier. Then he was pulled through the light away from the tunnel, far away from Earth, past stars and galaxies, past imagery and physical realities, to a multi-angled overview 
of all worlds and all creation, and passed even that to a second light at the edge of existence where vibrations cease. He saw all wars from their vibrations cease. Yeah. (laughs) He saw all wars from their beginnings, race as personality clusters, species operating like cells in a greater whole. By merging into the matrix of his soul, he confronted the all capitals, quote, no thing from which all things emerge. Mellon Thomas saw planetary energy systems in detail and how human thoughts influence these systems in a simultaneous interplay between past, present, and future. He learned that Earth is a great cosmic being. He was aware of falling back into his body after deciding to return from his journey. As near as hospice caretaker could determine, his experience took about 90 minutes. His doctor's assessment, though, was the most shocking. The cancer he had had completely vanished. (laughs) That is... Wow. And then he says this about the experience. He says, because this happened to me, my fear is gone, and my perspective has changed. You know, we are a very young species. The violence that formed the Earth is in us, too. As the Earth is mellowing, so so are the people. Once pollution slows, we will reach a period of sustained consciousness. We have evolved as life forms from single-celled organisms to complex structures, and finally to a global brain. Employment levels will never again be as they once were, which will force a redefinition of human rights. We will adopt a more nurturing type of consciousness, freeing the mind for exceptional achievement. I now know that all the answers to the world's problems are just beneath the surface in us all. Nothing is insolvable. He has been granted a number of U.S. patents and is actively engaged in advanced DNA research on the frontiers of that's very interesting. <laughs> one, so one thing that I find quite interesting is a lot of experiences like this, they tend to be um, the information that's given uh, and received and communicated in and all this is in this other dimension, whatever you want to call it, right? The psych, the psychic realm, the... He went the, pretty far out. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> he went to the edge of the uh, the universe, then passed there, yeah, past so, existence. So let me get, finish here. So, then there's very few experiences that are like this, where the psychic barrier is, like, crossed. A little bit. So, and I... I mean, I understand a lot of them see, like, space, or they see, like, the Earth, and they're floating outside of it, or whatever, and that kind of thing, and they go to a place. But a lot of it, right, they're not being told. So, like, this guy mm-hmm. saw into the future, like, saw saw everything. He just freaking traveled to the edge of existence. It literally sounds like he went to the end of time, right? Yeah. And saw the immortals. Yeah, whatever that is, right? Like the thing outside of everything where no vibrations are. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but uh, and, but then, so normally, like an experience like that would happen. I say normally, uh, and then they come back and they're just like a person. But then this guy gets told information pertaining to reality, and then proceeds to assert things about what will happen in our realm of existence. Like, 
He was talking about the future and, and how we'll then right and the employment levels and very specific things. Yeah, very Andrew Yang esque. Yeah, sure. And um, I find there's two I have found in my readings. There are two kinds of people like that. There's some that have very legitimate experiences that tend to be mostly true. And we can refer to Nostradamus as one of those famous people in history. And Carl Jung had some pretty famous visions that told the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's other people that they might have, they might have just as legitimate experiences in their own mind, but they come back and start asserting things about reality and they just end up looking like crazy lunatics and none of it comes true. And uh, um, so the the interesting thing is, right, is finding it out by living in the future. So like we don't, we won't, this guy, that sounds pretty intense, pretty, and there's potential there, right? It sounds very plausible. Let's not forget, his cancer disappeared. Well, yeah, well, That's a straight sure. up miracle. That's crazy. His reality literally changed because of this uh, extraordinary experience that he had. Mm-hmm. Now, what he's saying, it could all be true. It could be uh, divinely inspired by truth, which I think is probably closer to the truth. I think this is kind of what happens with things like the Bible. They mm-hmm. have this legitimate experience, a legitimate miracle. Mm-hmm. And then they're left with their human faculties which as we've talked about with the the human faculties coming back to the body felt like I was stuffed into a vessel of pain and exhaustion. Right. So if they're using this vessel of pain and exhaustion to uh, try to communicate, you know, this intense wisdom they just learned on a different realm, it might be wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. A problem in translation. Yeah. Uh, do you want to get into Carl Jung's near death? Yep. I, uh, I'll just read it out here from neardeath.com. Neardeath.com. What a, what a thing. Yep. It, uh, it's from his book though. Oh man. Now I feel bad because I can't remember which book it's from. It's from his memoir, which is something, oh, memories, dreams, and reflections. Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. It's the book. And it's like a memoir, autobiography kind of style of book. Uh, All right. We'll get into it here. The beginning of 1944, I broke my foot, and this misadventure was followed by a heart attack. In a state of unconsciousness, I experienced deliriums and visions, which, oh, I should preface this also. He has the initial near-death experience and then for months to come proceeds proceeds to have many other visions. visions. Yes. In while he's in the hospital bed still. And like, you know. Uh okay. I experienced deliriums and visions which must have begun when I hung on the edge of death and was being given oxygen and camphor injections. The images were so tremendous that I myself concluded that I was close to death. My nurse afterward told me it was as if you were surrounded by a bright glow. That was a phenomenon she had sometimes observed in the dying, she added. 
I reached the outermost limit and do not know whether I was in a dream or an ecstasy. At any rate, extremely strange, extremely strange things began to happen. It seemed to me that I was high up in space. Far below, I saw the globe of the earth bathed in glorious blue light. I saw the deep blue sea and the continents. Far below my feet lay uh, Ceylon, and in the distance ahead of me, the subcontinent of India. My field of vision did not include the whole earth, but its global shape was plainly distinguishable and its outlines show with a silvery gleam through that wonderful blue light. In many places, the globe seemed colored or spotted dark green like oxidized silver. Far away to the left lay a broad expanse, the reddish-yellow desert of Arabia. It was as though the silver of the earth had there assumed a reddish-gold hue. Then came the Red Sea, and far, far back, as if in the upper left of a map, I could just make out a bit of Mediterranean. My gaze was directed chiefly toward that. Everything else appeared indistinct. I could also see the snow-covered Himalayans, but in that direction it was foggy and cloudy. I did not look to the right at all. I knew that I was on the point of departing from the earth. Later I discovered how high in space one would have to be to have have so extensive a view, approximately a thousand miles. The sight of Earth from this height was the most glorious thing I had ever seen. After contemplating it for a while, I turned around. I had been standing with my back to the Indian Ocean, as it, as it were, in my face to the north. Then it seemed to me that I made a turn to the south. Something new entered my field of vision. A short distance away, I saw in space a tremendous dark black block of stone, like a meteorite. It was about the size of my house, or even bigger. It was floating in space, and I myself was floating in space. I had seen similar stones on the coast of the Gulf of Bengal. They were blocks of tawny granite, and some of them had been hollowed out into temples. My stone was one such gigantic dark block. An entrance led into a small antechamber to the right of the entrance a black Hindu sat silently in lotus posture upon a stone bench. He wore a white gown, and I knew that he expected me. Two steps led up to the antechamber, and inside on the left was the gate to the temple. Innumerable tiny niches, each with a saucer like concavity, filled the co with coconut oil and small burning wicks, surrounded the door with a wreath of bright flames. I had once actually seen this when I visited the Temple of the Holy Tooth at Candy in Ceylon. The gate had been framed by several rows of burning oil lamps of this sort. As I approached the steps leading up to the entrance into the rock, a strange thing happened. I had the feeling that everything was being sloughed away. Everything I aimed at or wished for or thought, the whole fan phantasmagoria of earthly existence fell away or was stripped from me. An extremely painful process. Nevertheless, something remained. It was as if I now carried along with me everything I had ever experienced or done, everything that had happened around me. I might also say it was with me and I was it. 
a consistent of all that, so to speak. I a consistent. I consisted of my history, and I felt with great certainty that it that is what I am. I am this bundle of what has been and what has been accomplished. This experience gave me a feeling of extreme poverty, but at the same time of great fullness. There was no longer anything I wanted or desired. I existed in an objective form. I was what I had been and lived. At first, the sense of annihilation predominated or having been stripped or pillaged. But suddenly, that became of no consequence. Everything seemed to be past. What remained was a fate complete without any reference back to what had been. There was no longer any regret that something had dropped away or been taken away. On the contrary, I had everything that I was, and that was everything. Something else engaged my attention. I approached, as I approached a temple, I had the certainty that I was about to enter an illuminated room and would meet there all those people to whom I belong in reality. There I would at last understand this too was certainty what historical nexus I or myself fitted into. I would know what had been before me, why I had come into being, and where my life was flowing. My life as I lived it had often seemed to me like a story that has no beginning and no end. I had the feeling that I was a historical fragment, an ex excerpt in which the preceding and succeeding text was missing. My life seemed to have been snipped out of a long chain of events, and many questions have remained unanswered. Why had it taken this course? Why had I brought these particular assumptions with me? What, I, what had I made of them? What will follow? I felt sure that I would receive an answer to all the questions as soon as I entered the rock temple. There I would meet the people who knew the answer to my question about what had been before and what would come after. While I was thinking over these matters, something happened that caught my attention. From below, from the direction of Europe, an image floated up. It was my doctor, or rather, his likeness framed by a golden chain or a golden laurel wreath. I knew it once. Aha! This is my doctor, of course, the one who has been treating me. But now he is coming in his primal form as a basilisk of costs. Uh, in life, he was an basilisk of costs, this subnote. In life, he was an avatar of the basilisk the temporal embodiment of the primal form which has existed from the beginning. Now he is appearing in that primal form. Basilis was the king of Kos. A small Greek island on the Aegean Sea, the island of Kos, was famous in antiquity as the site of the temple of Asclepius and was the birthplace of Hippocrates. Presumably, I too was in my primal form, though this was something I did not observe but simply took for granted. As he stood before me, I, a mute exchange of thought took place between us. The doctor had been de delegated by the earth to deliver a message to me to tell me that there was a pro protest against my going away. I had no right to leave the earth and must return. The moment I heard that, the vision ceased. I was profoundly disappointed, for now it all seemed to have been nothing. The painful process of defoliation had been in vain and was not to be allowed to enter the temple. To join the people in whose company I belong. In reality, 
A good three weeks were still to pass before I could truly make up my mind to live again. I could not eat because all food repelled me. The view of the city and mountains from my sick and sick bed seemed to me like a painted curtain with black holes in it or a tattered sheet of newspaper full of photographs that meant nothing disappointed, I thought. Um, do you think... Oh, Yep. Do you think uh, he was extremely detailed there just because this was kind of his field of study? Um, Two fire trucks. Man. Because uh, he, really, he really got in with specifics when it came to temples and people and places. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the other uh, near-death experiences do not get into such specifics unless they're talking about like Jesus or God. Right. Uh, so do you think it, he had these specifics just because he was so educated in that form? I, um, I, that's why I thought this was very interesting, mm-hmm. was because of the specifics that he could. And I think part of the reason is, I was going to bring this up too, is a lot of, I think he was very well versed in psychic matters, right, and had a lot better understanding of these things. And so where there's a lot of people that say they don't have the words to describe, he does have the words to describe it. And the ability to... Mm -hmm. He had many visions throughout his life, like full-on intense, crazy visions. And this was at the end of his life, obviously, towards the end. And, um, and not to mention those are all translated from Swiss, is it? Cur- uh, or is it uh, uh, Dutch? He is, uh, is it German. Swiss? Well, I think it's all German, actually. It wasn't German, was it? Um, but yes, it is all translated. So a lot of it may have sounded a little different. Yeah. yeah. He wrote in, I guess he wrote in academic German, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, that, I don't think he was <laughs> German. One of the top questions on Google for Carl Jung, is Carl Jung Korean? That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> terrible. Yep. Um, uh, so really weird to summarize some other stuff that happens at the end. He was convinced... So the doctor coming to him in his primal form in the vision, mm-hmm. telling him he had to go back to Earth, laying in his bed, thinking about it. He was convinced that this meant that the doctor was going to have to substitute his life for Carl Jung's. And he was very concerned about it for a long time. and For a weeks, I should say, not mm-hmm. years or anything. And his wife and the nurse started to become concerned about Carl Jung, he also fell into a very deep depression because he had the same experience where coming back to his body was like the worst thing that ever happened to him. Yeah. Um, And then very, very strangely, on April 4th, 1944, 4-4-4-4 was the first day that Carl Jung was allowed to leave his bed since he had fallen ill and was the last day that the doctor had was not in a bed from being ill. And then the doctor proceeded to die seven days later. 
Holy moly. And Carl Jung left the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Which is crazy. It's pretty crazy. I will say it doesn't sound as transcendental as those two other uh, experiences. Yes. Those two other ones, they sound like they really saw the ultimate of ultimate. Yeah. Well, Carl Jung seems like he, he slipped into some other realms where they tool around with our reality a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then he, he does talk about, too, later, he had, um, so after the doctor died, he has problems sleeping. Uh, and the world, this is when he's in his depression. And the world seems pointless, right? Depression, classic mm-hmm. depression. And he would fall asleep in the early afternoon and wake up around midnight. And then in that sleeping period, he would have these visions of ecstasy, have the heav- very much the heavenly classic um, thing. I, as though I were safe in the womb of the universe. Whoa. Quotes from him. Uh, and he'd feel that every night for a couple nights. And he wouldn't. He'd be super depressed, like not eating during the day, but the nurse would make him food and feed it to him in that state of like weird, semi-conscious ecstasy, whatever. It happened to him lots of nights in a row. That's right. Uh, uh, And then he has this weird vision of the garden of pomegranates. It's very reminiscent. Yeah. And, and very reminiscent to the Greek gods guy. Uh, yeah, but he definitely, I don't think he has any um, transcendental seeing the center of the universe kind of thing. Um, um, and that's that's another thing I'll touch on with this next story. This next story is a friend of mine who I, I won't name uh, for obvious reasons shortly. Right. But his near-death experience was like the opposite of intense. It was very subtle. Interesting. But it still really affected I, I messaged him uh, months and months ago. Actually, it was <laughs> it's more than a year ago about this. Dang. Because this is when I was planning on doing this podcast. It was more than a year yeah. ago. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, have you ever had any near-death experiences? And he said, uh, I'd say I've had three experiences. A few years back, I'd gone to an amusement park, and I'd gone on one of those roller coasters that have you hanging in your seat. As we were going, my seat unlocked, and I raised before one of the loops. Uh, It seemed as if all time had slowed, as it went open and I pulled it shut. If I hadn't reacted faster, the coaster would have done its loop, and I wouldn't have stayed in. Uh, So he basically had time slowed, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, is a very interesting phenomenon. I've had it happen once in my life, Mm -hmm. and it is bizarre. It's like, you know, some people say time slows down, like, you know, minutes are slower than usual but this is like weird it's like time actually slows like you move your hand and you see it moving slowly Mm. it's like it's very interesting uh he said that didn't seem out of body uh but time felt like it was slowed down but my reaction was processed as normal uh and then his next story is uh well before i hospitalized myself due to an attempt on my uh, life last april there was an attempt that had gone unset I never said anything because it sounded crazy. I'd hung a noose and weighed it down by about 200 pounds, enough to hold myself. 
The falling and hanging was painful, but after about a minute, maybe, my vision faded and everything became calm. It was dark, but peaceful. It was quiet once my vision faded. Um, then he says there was a voice talking to me, repeating the same thing. It just kept saying, not now. She needs you still. Not now. She needs you still. And he says, I don't know who she is. And the voice sounded familiar, but I can't recognize it. After so long, I came to and the paracord had snapped. <laughs> I had, uh, I laughed when I talked to him about this, too. So don't. Because it, it he says it's crazy. The paracord isn't supposed to break easily. He thought it was crazy, too. Uh, and I asked him if he had, like, a sister or anything. And he said, I do, but she wasn't home. And she, she has a deeper female voice. The voice I'd heard was calming and higher pitched. Uh, he really wants to know who it is, uh, but he says he'll have to wait. Um, and he says he likes to think that he heard it for a reason. Um then he goes on and he says, uh, I asked like kind of what that state was like. And he said it was uh, relaxed, really, more than any other time. It was a dark, peaceful thing. Despite being darkness, it was calming. I felt nothing. Really. Uh, and he said it was probably like the deepest peace he had ever known. Mm. And he didn't feel worry or pain. He woke up confused. Confused as to where he was and what had happened. He was on uh, the floor beside a knocked over chair and uh, a broken paracord. No anger, just confusion. Uh, third time he had hospitalized himself uh, from a drug overdose, an, in an intentional one. And uh, he said uh, he had lost consciousness and... Uh, and had what I think was a dream that was similar to the second time. It was the same voice telling me, she needs you here. You can't leave yet. It was like I was sitting and listening to something I couldn't see. It was just as peaceful as before. Um, eventually, I'd wake up to me in the hospital bed. Doc said if my mother didn't get home from work and managed to open the door sooner, that chances are more of my organs would have failed and most likely killed me. My kidney and liver had already failed and began to poison me. Um... He does want to know what it means, the same voice with a similar message, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was his account. Uh, battery on this thing is running low, so we're going to have to wrap it up here. I've got one more account from an old uh, co-worker of mine. Uh, he said I could share share this with everyone. Let me, uh, let me pull it up here. He said he was, uh, he was a kid. He was floating the river on his raft with some friends and his friend's dad and his raft flipped over. He said he blacked out and then all of a sudden started floating to a white ball in the sky. Uh, one of uh, his friend's dad grabbed his arm and pulled him to the surface. Um, but he says it was crazy because it was all chaos, but he was at perfect peace. Like, uh, he remembers standing at the bottom of the river and it was all peaceful. And then I started to float up to the light and then my, my friend's dad grabbed me. Um, so that's probably where we'll end with this episode. I've got uh, 22 minutes left on here. Um, you have anything to add? Any thoughts? Any, any uh, reflections? Yeah. <laughs> Quite a bit, probably. 
It's yeah. going to take a while to process. Yeah. The uh, one thing that always happens when I look into things like this is you always get this sense of just like, I should say, I always get this sense of mm -hmm. it's fun to learn about, but it's so tiring Trust me. to try and figure out what is happening. And you, like, or I, get this sense that there's not a whole lot of point. Mm -hmm. What, and, and trying to figure out, like, a specifically, like, what is going on because mm -hmm. you could like if you think about it like this if you spent forever trying to figure it out and you actually succeeded in understanding what's going on would that what what would that do for you? i don't think you can understand yeah. as a human and i think that's the safest thing to go with i think that the closest we can come is to understanding that there's a different state of consciousness where we may be able to understand a little better. Um, and it's not the human one. Um, yeah, and I, I just want to comment, and again, the near-death experience that, that's as subtle as the disembodied voice in peaceful darkness is, I think, just as powerful well, I think I'm being disingenuous when I say it's just as powerful <laughs> as seeing the, the being at the end of existence. But I will say, in terms of how it affects someone's life, it's, it has equal, it can have equal or greater value. I mean, my friend hearing this voice saying, uh, not now, she still needs you. That kept him going for enough years to, you know, kind of gained more ground in, in his battle against depression slash suicide slash, you know, whatever it is that ailed him to, to attempt those things. Mm -hmm. So these near-death experiences, they are helpful uh, to most people, a vast majority of them. Um, I think we'll end on that for now. I think there's definitely going to be a part two of this for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I have uh, one, two, three... Four people I want to interview on this topic. Uh, I've got them all lined up. I don't know when I'll get to that, but I, I'll, I'll either phone interview them or I'll, I'll meet them in person. That would be uh, cool. Yeah, I'm excited to. I'm excited to hear a lot of them because uh, I'll, I'll give a quick rundown. Uh, my dad almost drowned when he was a, a kid mm -hmm. and had a whole life flash before his eyes thing. And my brother fell through a roof once and then saw a, a passed away step ramp in a bright light and stuff. Uh, my dad's uh, girlfriend saw or saw had this moment where she knew everything ever. <laughs> and then uh, uh, another friend of mine said he had a, a, an event with a miracle apparition. I have no idea what that means, yeah. but I'm excited to find out. I don't <laughs> Uh, I will say, I've talked to my dad about this before, that uh, when you said one of them knew everything for a second, I've had several moments in my life, like laying alone in your dark room with nothing. You're sitting there thinking, and for 
fleeting time, almost incomparably small amount of time that seems large when you're in it, when I was in it. I've had that before, where you just are like, oh, everything makes sense. It's like knowing everything, but in a, it's not literally, like you can't just be like, I know. No, it's more of like a sudden understanding of, it's like a sudden wisdom that is fleeting. Yeah. And, and it's like a, it's like, what it's like is you've got a glimpse of the plan mm-hmm. just long enough to know. There is one. And it's, and it's pretty <laughs> solid. Uh, but, uh, all right. Yep. Well, uh. See on episode nine. This was episode eight, I think. All of these episodes are different if you haven't found out already. Thank you for listening if you did, in fact, listen. Uh, if you didn't listen, well, thanks for skipping to the one hour and 46 minute mark. Um, bye. <laughs>